memorable and telling race in Kentucky and what it could mean going forward. A status check on some drivers on the opposite end of the age curve. What's most important for New Hampshire and the first report from the Positive Regression Scouting Network. Big show coming up. But first, of course, this is episode 26 of Positive Regression. This is the Brett Bodine edition. David, I say it a lot, but as a child of the 90s, when I think of the 26, I think of a beautiful green machine, white numbers, Quaker State number 26. It's Brett Bodine, episode 26. Quaker State recently had a fan vote for what paint scheme Paul Menard was going to run at Kentucky. He was going to run a Quaker State scheme, and the Brett Bodine scheme lost. Uh, so, I, oh my gosh, correct yourself. I mean, bring that back. 2020 needs to be just the white and green, because that car was beautiful, Alan. Very simple. Yes. Like a road sign. <laughs> Got the job done, and, and, and what that team represented. That was a team-owned by NHRA megastar Kenny Bernstein. So strange. But Ricky Rudd uh, was the driver who occupied the 26 prior to Brett Bodine, but he always spoke fondly of that team. He said that they blew motors all the time, but you know the most fun he's ever had, they never lost a party. Uh, Larry McReynolds was the crew chief, and they had actually a pretty sound team in 1988 and 1989. And I encourage all of our listeners to go to Racing Reference, pull up Ricky Rudd's 1988 season, and just stare at the sheer amount of engine failures because it's unfathomable. But I'll dive into probably what the number 26 car is most famous for, but I'll preface it with just a personal story. Um, I had the opportunity to interact with Brett on a regular basis. He worked with NASCAR uh, until this season. He oversaw the driver approval process for every series from K&N on up to the Cup Series. And he was a he was a good man, upfront about everything. Even when I knew I was submitting a questionable driver, he was polite in the response. I had uh, I, I had figured out his line of thought on driver approval a long time before I think I started asking some random uh, questions uh, on behalf of overeager clients, as you do. But I think he understood that. Very, very good guy. Um, I don't know if you had any interaction with him, uh, Alan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, being that he drove the pace car and was obviously a NASCAR official, uh, was very friendly with him, always down in the pits and got to interview him for, uh, some really good stories. And just being him being a Northeasterner, modified guy, it was, it was cool to share stories. And obviously I worked with his brother Todd, uh, the truck master on Fox. So, uh, the Bodines are always good people. Let's talk about what maybe he's remembered for. It was his, his lone win and it came in the 26 car, uh, 1990. North Wilkesboro Speedway, the first Union 400. Um, I'm going to try to articulate this from memory. So it was getting to the end of that race, and a green flag pit cycle was forming. Brett Bodine, crew chiefed by Larry Mack, uh, short pitted very early in that cycle. And then towards the end of the cycle, Daryl Waldrop pitted, Dale Earnhardt pitted, all of the favorites um, that you would assume during that time were in contention for the race win. And a, a driver making his Cup Series debut that day spun. His name was Kenny Wallace. <laughs> and the caution came out. 
And there was not at this point in time, a nuanced timing and scoring setup. Uh, and especially at a, at a track like North Wilkesboro, which I know it's fond in a lot of fans' hearts, but eh, not a lot of amenities at this place. So it was, uh, it was very old school, even in 1990. NASCAR wasted 17 laps under caution to get the scoring settled. They thought that because Brett Bodine had shorted the cycle, he came out with the lead. He inherited the lead, but while they were trying to suss out their timing and scoring mess, Bodine snuck in another pit stop for tires, which <laughs> were at a premium at North Wilkesboro, and they didn't catch it. So the pace car lined up in front of Brett Bodine's car, and, he, and even uh, this is according to uh, Daryl Waldrop's book written by Jade Gerse, Brett Bodine was radioing Larry McReynolds saying, I'm not the leader. And Larry Mack was telling him, shut up. You're the leader and you have four fresh tires. <laughs> and, and, and Brett went on to lead the final 60 laps of the race, was scored as the winner. Daryl Waldrop protested. Bill Franz Jr. was more or less told Daryl, mm, you've won like 70 something races. Shut your face. And that was that. Like that was the story. Uh, and that was Buick's last NASCAR win too. But, uh, that, wow. that is the, that's the Brett Bodine. North Wilkesboro win story, I think there needs to be some sort of really sophisticated oral history devoted to that one race because just chaos ensued. We may be the ones that have to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've got, I mean, we've got a good relationship with Brett. We can bring him on here and, uh, Daryl Waldrop isn't busy, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's retirement. <laughs> uh, wow. That's funny. Brett's first, Buick's last. For me, David, again, 90s kid, growing up, what, Brett Bodine produced and gave me one of the most significant, if not, I, I'll say the most significant racing memory of my lifetime, which is big. You know, I was a Rusty Wallace fan. A lot's happened in my lifetime. But this goes all the way back to the inaugural Brickyard 400, David. 1994. Everybody remembers Jeff Gordon winning that race. Few people remember what should have happened and who probably should have won the race. Now imagine this, 11-year-old Alan, I'm an only child, big race fan, leading, dominating, someone who probably should have won that race, maybe not dominating, but Jeff Bodine, this was his year, man. This was the Jeff Bodine, Hoosier Tire year, winning races, leading the Brickyard, Brett Bodine having an awesome day that day, battling for the lead. At one point in the race, David, Brett Bodine takes out his brother. His brother leading the race and Brett Bodine takes him out, ends both of their chances at winning the Brickyard 400, the inaugural Brickyard 400. To that point, the biggest race of my lifetime. And I see a brother on brother violence. And again, me being an only child, an 11 year old, at that point in my life, I like to say my childhood ended. Not to be dramatic, but at that point in my life, I've realized that there was evil in the world. I realized bad things could happen. I realized life was not going to go as I once thought it would be because there would be twists and turns like what I just saw on my television, and I couldn't believe it. I don't understand the brother dynamic. I couldn't understand how one brother could do that to another and end their chance at the biggest race in the world, and it just altered the course of my thinking forever, and I, I grew up that day, and that's what I'll say about Brett Bodine. 
like you, I'm an only child, and I got to tell you, it's been great uh, <laughs> for, for for about 35 years on Earth. It has just been wonderful. So inadvertently, Brett Bodine started the Jeff Gordon dynasty. Is what you're what you're kind of getting at, here. and that not and that you know that started the first domino of a whole other thing of Jeff Gordon ruining my uh, racing life. You know, with Rusty and everything. So, uh, well, I have a lot to blame Brett Bodine on. Sorry, Brett. No, <laughs> he's a great guy, and one of the best stories I've ever done, at least for me personally. I sat down Brett and I sat down Jeff in the old NASCAR.com days, and it did a really cool story talking about that very incident. It's on YouTube. Uh, I think I've spoken about it on here before, and I'll tweet it out again. But uh, that's one of my most memorable stories is talking to them about that incident and telling them what it did for me too. So uh, we've talked a lot about Brett Bodine. It's a hell of a hell of a start to episode 26. Hey, he's a good guy. Heck of a career. Weird career, but um, certainly noteworthy. Yeah, that's why we do this podcast, to talk about uh, numbers and memories of uh, driver's past. Good start, but let's go back. And now, we don't always recap last weekend's race, David, but the race we saw in Kentucky and its significance. We talked about it last uh, episode, about what it could mean looking forward toward the championship. I think it's important we go back and look at what happened at Kentucky. A very memorable finish. If you listen to last week's episode, we always talk about what we want to see for the upcoming week. David, I said I want to see four different drivers lead at least 50 laps, and I want to see a good finish. And would you believe I almost got it? We had four drivers lead 40 or more laps, and we saw a damn good finish. So I'm patting myself on the back right now. Uh, did you place a prop bet? And are you currently driving a Maserati in Newport Beach? No, no, no. I would have lost because I said okay. 50, but I'll take what I got with the 40. The four drivers and 40 laps, I think that was still pretty damn good. I mean, that, that was a great call. And um, I, I thought this was a good race. Um, I have always been a Kentucky fan. Uh, I have gone on the record saying that I've enjoyed all iterations of this track. The When it had the bumps, I thought it made that just wildly interesting. When they smoothened it out, uh, a part of my childhood diet, Alan. But uh, I got to tell you, this was um, this was a good one. You know, for all the uh the chaos and i think a lot of that had to do with varying pit strategies pretty volatile stuff um on that end but there were only two drivers who spent over 90% of their laps inside the top 15 alan do you care to guess who they are kurt and kyle bush yes yes yeah so i mean even even <laughs> even as random as that uh as that finish looked i mean it's it's hard to say that one you know the track position didn't matter because it certainly did, and that two those were the best two guys all race i mean i I thought it was interesting um tire wear just meant absolutely nothing minimal seems like the wrong word here i'm gonna go with nothing uh kurt bush ran 2970s and 2980s prior to pitting for four tires on that last uh green flag pit cycle after taking the tires 2970s and 2980s so no change uh I, at one point taylor Hart jr uh commented about oh man these tires mean so much and I was kind of thinking, like, I wonder what race Dale Jr. is watching, but Steve Letarte was there to to correct him. Um, thank goodness. But w- what that meant is we saw a lot of wild crew chief decisions that panned out. Uh, Denny Hamlin had the second fastest on-off time during that final uh, green flag pit cycle, pitted for fuel only, 
but it helped him move from 10th to 4th. Eric Jones had a pair of uh, two-tire stops under yellow and secured a lot of track position uh, during the, I believe, the first green flag pit cycle. Chris Gale calling for, I believe, fuel only, but it gained them 15 spots. So Eric Jones started deep in the field and then all of a sudden closed that gap and he had the track position for the rest of the race and he had a really good finish. I'd be remiss, Alan, if we didn't talk about Kurt Busch, Matt McCall, and literally one race after Daytona where, for some reason, Matt McCall received a lot of backlash. Yeah, and they were, you know, they had fun with it on, on Twitter and everything, and I'm sure he had plenty of critics when, and when it looked like was almost hand delivered to them in Daytona. Um, and they rebound and get their first win. Matt McCall's first win. Kurt Busch delivers another first time winner, uh, for a crew chief. And I was never really worried about their performance, right? We've talked about Kurt Busch. Uh, we, you know, he was, you named him the overachiever of the, the first half of the season, having a great average finish despite not having one of the faster cars. It was never the performance I was worried about after Daytona, David, but maybe, you know, the mental side. I mean, there was a, uh, you know, there was a time where you could perceive Kurt Busch as someone who could go through a, a situation like Daytona go back and just yell at the team, right? Or or just have a lot of infighting in the team after a decision like that goes south. Instead, it seems to have galvanized the team. This is a, a different, more mature, older, wiser Kurt Busch. Something happened during, the, during that week that galvanized the team, and they come back, and they get the shot at the end, the opportunity. Really, they were good throughout the race, but then they have the opportunity at the end on that restart, and Kurt Busch goes out and not not steals one. He takes one. He earned it. And that was impressive to me because a situation like Daytona could have broken a team like that. Instead, it seemed to uh, fix them together even better. And now they're winners. I was a little bit surprised about how much crap McCall took for Daytona. Just so we can backtrack for our listeners if they're just not sure. Uh, he pitted Kurt Busch under a weather yellow. And had he just not pitted, they would have ultimately inherited the win, right? Like sim- simple as that. And in a vacuum, yes, that is a pretty significant mistake. But in McCall's defense, uh, didn't the July Daytona race start a little before midnight on a Sunday not too long ago? Like this, the, the July Daytona race is this weird isolated event where nothing seems to ever make sense. And it would probably be the last race where I would be a stickler about airtight pit strategy just because, I don't know, weird stuff tends to happen. But fast forward to Kentucky, um, Matt McCall put four tires on Kurt Busch, dropping him from second prior to the final green flag pit cycle to fifth. And from that point, Bush got one spot back. The caution came out for Bubba Wallace. Bush restarted from the outside of the second row. And I'll credit Dale Jr. He said, watch Kurt Bush right here. Uh, Kurt Bush in a preferred group spot. That's when the show started. Uh, now it all worked out, but looking back, either Matt McCall took four tires knowing full well that his driver had the ability to make up that ground or was confident in the speed of his car. Or McCall completely messed up the call and Kurt Busch bailed him out. Giving McCall the benefit of the doubt, I'll say that the former is correct 
and McCall had some kind of crunch time air pressure adjustment up his sleeve because that's the only way I can see them forcing four tires in a situation where they see an all race that tires eh, doesn't doesn't really matter and the track position is most important. But as you said, Kurt Busch went out and took this race. That was a heck of a restart and a heck of a finish. And it was two drivers doing everything in their capability to beat each other. So bravo. It was a good finish. Yeah. And then we, we have to talk about the driver who finished second, his brother Kyle, because we set up the Kentucky race on last week's episode as vastly important for Kyle Busch and his title chances. Again, it's all about Homestead, not necessarily the entire year or how fast you are or how many wins you have. It's how you perform at Homestead if you're going to be champion. And Kentucky being the moderate mile and a half track that it is, we talked about it last week, David. We showed you that, that Kyle Busch, when it comes to his competitors, not up to par at these moderate mile-and-a-half tracks. He hadn't been heading into Kentucky. So we were wondering, what will Kentucky show us about his performance at these type of tracks, like Homestead, coming up in the future? And what did we see? We saw a driver at the front of the field, maybe not the winning car, obviously, but we saw a lot of good performance out of Kyle Busch at Kentucky. Does that change your perception of him as a title contender now? A thousand times, yes. He is – Kyle Busch is so good already, and his team is so good that they receive the benefit of the doubt when they have a performance like they had last Saturday. I believe it's okay to question whether they're bulletproof – in a single race scenario at Homestead. They haven't shown that they are that, so that's fair. Uh, but this was enough to prove that they're up for the task as opposed to the other really good JGR driver in Martin Truex, who again looked lost at a moderate mile and a half track, um, this time at Kentucky, something I wrote about this week for the athletic, but Kyle, yeah, I, I, he he's a title contender now, even though he doesn't have the wins at the moderate mile and a half to show for that. Everybody should fear him already. <laughs> if they already were, if they weren't fearing him yet, they should certainly fear him now after that performance in Kentucky. Kyle Busch, still a young guy, relatively, but uh, let's talk about some of. Let's talk about the age spectrum, David. It's something uh, we, we preach on here a lot. The the age 39 phenomenon, uh, the age curve in racing. I'll let you uh, expand on it a little more, but we're going to check in on some drivers because historically, anything after the age 39, the data says, is just not kind to a driver. We see it in every other sport. Performance goes down with age and racing is no different. We often don't think about it. We often don't talk about it in that way. But the stats, the bell, not the bell curve, but the, the charts, the dots, and the, and the data show us performance goes down with age, even in racing. David, am I explaining it correctly? Uh, yes. Um, after, after age 39 season, it's a pretty swift decline. Uh, it might take a different bounce depending on the driver, but. 40, 41 is kind of the last vestige of good performance. And then 42, 43 on down is uh, kind of where it goes for NASCAR drivers. Perhaps it's the nexus point of uh, intelligence and eyesight. And after age 40, the eyesight becomes a little worse for wear and ultimately uh, more integral to production. 
than uh, knowledge accrued through all those years of experience. And that's why we want to check in on some drivers, both old and young. And David, we're going to start with the seven-time champ, Jimmy Johnson, 43-year-old Jimmy Johnson. We know he had a down year last year. If you're looking at his age, you could expect some sort of drop in production, right? He's 43 years old. If you, if the average driver peaks at 39, Jimmy Johnson is far from the average driver. But last year, his age 42 season was not what it was supposed to be. And now at age 43, David, believe it or not, we are seeing an increase in his performance, in his peer, his performance and equal equipment rating. What does this tell us about Jimmy Johnson? Does this tell us more about last year or this year, if you will? I don't know that the first half of this year told us everything that we need to know about Jimmy Johnson. Uh, I wrote about him briefly last week for The Athletic, but to me, he's a candidate for normal regression during the season's second half, primarily because his peer is much higher than it was last season. It's higher than what was projected The second half swoon is most likely given the scenario for any driver, including someone as celebrated as Johnson. Uh, I guess he's taking it a little bit from fans on social media. Uh, I said that uh, this week that they're questioning his effort and desire, but there's no evidence that I see uh, for anyone to seriously consider that. Uh, What should be questioned is whether he is in decline. I believe it's safe to assume that he is. He's the slowest of the four Hendrick Motorsports entries right now. Even on the drafting tracks, this was hilariously clear. At Daytona and Talladega, Hendrick cars ranked first, second, third, and 17th in central speed. And he's the outlier there. It stands to reason he might not be pressing as much as his uh, much younger, perhaps hungrier stable mates. Uh, but he's not making too many mistakes, uh, Kentucky, not considered. And uh, that that might be the result of uh, his heightened production this year. But doing that is also dependent on the performance of the cars most often in front of him in the running order. And in that regard, he's kind of back there. He's hanging on 17th, 18th, 19th. And that's not the production we're typically used to seeing from Jimmy Johnson. Interesting. Jimmy Johnson, 43 years old, still trying to contend for championship number eight. Moving on to Paul Menard, age 38. We got some news out of Paul Menard this week, or last weekend in Kentucky, saying that he does have a contract for 2020, so he will be around for his age, what, David? 39 season. Paul Menard, age 39. Statistically, he is on the upswing. Uh, he has improved over last year. That's what the, the data tells us should happen at age 38 as he leads into his age 39 season, not lighting the world on fire, but as uh, the data shows us, age 38 into 39 is generally a statistical upswing for a driver, and we are seeing that out of Paul Menard this season. Uh, let me qualify this now. Uh, so, so later I don't have to. He isn't going to magically become a championship contender next season because he'll be 39, uh, but he could be a heightened version of what we've seen from him recently. I just would not expect much because the peripheral numbers simply are not there. Uh, dating back to the beginning of 2017, he's lost nearly 370 positions beyond the expectation of his average running whereabouts. That's what he's done. I mean, that is that happened. Drop him in the middle of traffic, and he will struggle. 
So is that going to radically change in his magical age 39 season? No, it's not. But we can expect maybe a decent year relative to Paul Menard's history. Uh, I know Adam Stern uh, reported that Paul Menard was considering retirement. I like Adam Stern. He hustles. He's right about most things, even though he spelled my name incorrectly in a tweet once. Don't know how that happens, but um, <laughs> I, I, I will I will say that old guy considering retirement does not feel like news. That feels like a trope. Uh, so it stands to reason that Bernard is kind of thinking about his next steps. But right now he's entrenched with Wood Brothers Racing. Uh, him being there is keeping them propped up with their affiliation with Team Penske. He is a tide lifting boats over there, keeping some folks employed and maybe keeping the seat warm for somebody like Austin Sendrick. But right now he's the driver. Um, I think we need to manage those expectations that go along with age 39. Yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, just because you turned 39 does not make you into a a race winner, championship contender. I think what we're saying is age 39, you just become the best version of yourself, statistically speaking, average, right? <laughs> you become the best version of who you're going to be. We've all been waiting for a fully realized Paul Menard. <laughs> and we are going to see it, says, says the stats, and we might be seeing it right now with his upswing this season at age 38. Moving on, another uh, driver, former champion on the uh, other side of 39, a truck series, Johnny Sauter. Unfortunately for him, uh, suffering a precipitous drop right now, coming off a season with a, a bunch of wins, uh, a 4.087 peer, a peer that is now down to 1.79, David. Uh, this is an interesting case for a driver known for dominating, uh, for getting wins, dominating the truck series, and just overall performance. Age may say one thing, uh, you know, being the age that he is, but uh, this fall seems dramatic to me. Since we talked about Johnny Sauter uh, on this podcast after his Dover win, he's competed in six of the seven truck series races. He was famously suspended for one of them. Um, but in the six races he was in scored a negative 0.833 peer across that span. His best finish of 10th, uh, came at Kentucky, uh, during that time frame. The Thor Sport 13 teams had a cavalcade of errors, uh, mechanical, yep. uh, just brain farts, uh, solder, popped for four speeding penalties and one commitment line violation in the last two races. Matt Crafton had a commitment line violation uh, as well. They had it together. It was the same pit stop. Okay. Oh, okay. I, wonder what I feel like they followed there. each other in. They, they were right behind each other coming into the pits. It was weird. I, can't, I, shouldn't, I would not advise that. Um, <laughs> his, his peer right now actually ranks worse than Brandon Jones, Brennan Poole, and Corey Roper. Uh, he's 41 years old, so decline is entirely possible, but all of this smacks of just self-inflicted nonsense. Uh, he's still the third most efficient passer among series regulars, but of late, that strength has been used to dig out of holes that he and his team created for themselves. Uh, I, I don't know that Age right now is a hindrance, as top-heavy as the truck series tends to be. I, I think he can probably make his career last until maybe his late 40s uh, at a viable pace. 
what's your take on it? You've, you've been around him. You've, you've kind of gotten the feel of, uh, how things uh, have gone since the, the Austin Hill incident. I'm, I'm curious. What do you think? Well, the, I was going to ask you about this because, you know, a Johnny Sauter fan would, would say, look, they had, a, they had a weird freak accident with the, the transmission breaking, you know, a part broke the input shaft that, that you never see happen. So how can you put that on Johnny Sauter? You know what I mean? Uh, he has the, the contact with Austin Hill, maybe, maybe not his fault, but you know, that takes him out of a good finish. He has some other engine issues at another race. That's not Johnny Sauter's fault. Or, or are we really seeing a decline in Johnny Sauter's, you know, skill or are we just seeing him with bad luck? How, how do you factor in mechanical and or bad luck, David, when you're, when, when you're factoring in performance? No, weird mechanical things aren't, they don't typically fall on a driver, but that, that might be an indictment on the team. I mean, perhaps Joe Shear Jr. needs to get his team in order, uh, for the, the stretch run and especially the playoffs. They're already locked in. So which are very it could lucky. be. Yeah, and it could be just a possibility that they're, you know, after the suspension, they're just going to kind of punt on things. But I don't think that's the philosophy that they would have. Uh, that team uh, has a, a lot of uh, red-assed racers among them. I mean, that's that they're a competitive team, and Johnny Sauter is certainly that guy. But I don't know that they're all blameless. I don't know that Sauter is blameless. I, I, mistakes are due to lack of concentration, lack of attention. And uh, that's not something that they can have in the playoffs, uh, but they are very fortunate in that they have time to right the ship and get themselves in a championship shape. Yes, they do. That was the truck series. Let's uh, check in on the Xfinity series because Cole Custer uh, is having a hell of a year and he is age 21. And, and again, following the historical data, you should have an upswing uh, during your 21 season. And I think last year he had a peer of 2.28. This year he is up to 3.61 a peer with five wins. Um, and again, we've talked about him on this podcast before. What makes him so unique is the production he's getting at such a young age. It makes him a very attractive prospect in the future. But David, for a 21-year-old, how do you judge Cole Custer? Well, even, and I'm, I'm the father of Pierre, right? Like I, that, that is a stat that I created. But for me, the thing that I'm most excited about with Custer isn't the production increase, but it's his growing ability. Uh, and case in point, I've been posting track position radar charts recently on motorsportsanalytics.com and Custer's was one of them. I noted his improvement in passing over the last two years, in 2017, his radar chart was barren. In 2019, it's filled with color. Uh, he is now an effective passer on short tracks, mile and a halves, and two-mile tracks. And this addressed a lot of the questions I had of him in the beginning of the season when I did my prospect rankings. Anyone arguing that he's the number one prospect in the world can point to his improvement, or they can just point to the one race at Chicago Land Speedway and consider who he beat for the win. Uh, Joey Logano, the reigning Cup Series champion, finished second. Christopher Bell finished third and then was disqualified. And that kind of speaks to where Cole Custer is right now. He's kind of cementing a spot. He's in the discussion for best prospect in the world right now. Uh, certainly at this juncture, not only do I think he's ready for the Cup Series, but within his first two or three years, he'd probably offer a very 
good upgrade over three of the four drivers on the Stuart Haas racing roster. So Ooh. I'm going to say that that's going to have to be something that Stuart Haas considers going into 2020. Wow, that will be uh it's interesting to hear first of all and that'll be interesting to see what happens given uh wh- what we know about Stuart Haas Racing and the potential openings there for 2020. Finally, when we're looking at old guys versus uh young guys, uh the youngest guy, the first winner born in the 2000s to win a race in the National 3 National Series, David, young Tyler Ankrum, Mr. Excitement he, I've been singing his praises on this podcast for a while now. Again, just having the benefit of seeing every lap in the truck series this season. As I've said before on this podcast, it was last month, uh, at least one time per race, there is something exciting that Tyler Ankrum did, uh, whether it was just forcing it four wide, you know, maybe, maybe not the best decision, but it was, or, you know, going down pit road backwards and keeping it clean, you know, not wrecking his truck and coming back and getting a good finish. But there, you, there's just something you could see on the racetrack that it was fun to watch this driver in the 17 as he went around each time. And then would you believe it, David? He goes out, totally shakes up the truck series playoffs and gets a win in Kentucky. The young kid from California. I mean, the wind says a lot about him. I was checking out, you know, your age progression data. It doesn't even really go down to the age 18. Uh, what, 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 what should we be looking at when we're looking at this young driver? Age 18, Tyler Ankrum. Look at a bit of everything right now. Uh, last week's race was the fastest we have ever seen a DGR Crosley truck on a mile and a half. He had the second best average running position for the race. So, you know, for the folks suggesting he won solely on fuel mileage, while no. accurate, it does feel a little like poor form. Where Ankrum will have to work is his long run passing. Six of his 10 measurable races this season resulted in a negative pass differential. But there is good news. And it, it pertains to uh, the, the driver we just finished discussing, Cole Custer. Uh, the blueprint is there. Uh, while we have questions about Ankrum's ability to score track position and we're wondering where it's going to come from when he isn't in a fast uh, car, he's only 18. So there is no need to panic. We learned by watching Cole Custer that that's what the truck series and the Xfinity series are for with these young drivers is development. And, uh, and that's what Tyler Ankrum is doing. It is a live trial by fire all the while ranking fifth in the series and pier that's pretty impressive i can't think of a bigger opportunity when you have the fastest or second fastest truck in the race i mean as a young driver you have to go out there and deliver right i mean if that if your chance to win is there you have to show people you can go out there and do it and that's what tyler ankrum did in kentucky quite exciting and again really shaking up the uh, truck series playoff picture because there will be four decent trucks and teams that do not make it, and he knocked another one out right now. So uh, interesting stuff when we're talking about age, young versus old, a topic we will always come back to. Remember that age 39 statistic, a favorite of positive regression. Moving on up to New Hampshire this weekend for the Xfinity Series and the Cup Series. Obviously a track close to my heart, being a New Englander, being from Connecticut. Uh, Rusty Wallace winning the inaugural race up there in New Hampshire. That's 
you know, there's no reason I should have said that other than just mentioning how good Rusty Wallace is and was. But David, let's talk about 2019 and the fastest cars on a flat mile track like New Hampshire. Who should we be looking at this season? Well, I think New Hampshire is one of Martin Truex's 12 home tracks, right? Uh, the number 19 has been the fastest this season on the one-mile track type. Uh, of course, uh, we're talking about a small sample size and different shapes to those mile tracks, but interesting nonetheless. Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, and Clint Boyer rank second through fifth in central speed. Kyle Busch, the fastest in the sport overall, ranks sixth on one-mile tracks specifically. So, uh, I'm going to say that's going to be the usual suspects in play for the win this weekend in New Hampshire. All right. We know who's fast. Tell me about restarts because that's something I always like to look at now that you know, we've been doing this podcast. And I, I tell people, you know, you can start watching the race differently. You can start watching, you know, a few uh, rows back on every restart and see where people end up. Which groove is the preferred when it comes to a New Hampshire restart? You'd think a relatively flat mile track would cater to the inside line, but nope, not at New Hampshire. Uh, the outside is where every driver will want to be. A 50% difference in retention wow. rates from the first seven rows. The outside groove uh, retained nearly 88% of the time compared to 37% from the inside uh, last season. We saw a similar dynamic in 2017 as well. Alan, I know you like tweeting this type of factoid, so here you go. Third place in last year's race in New Hampshire, lost position on every single restart. There were seven of them, uh, and that has actually been something that's been volatile there in past races. But last year, running third had no advantages. Wow. And hopefully, maybe a team or two is listening to the Positive Regression Podcast, and maybe they know that, and we'll see some uh, pit road games, you know, coming out, because no one will want to be third if they are listening to this podcast. You'd have to be crazy to be third and not play a little pit road game if you know what exactly you're talking about. Now, we know position on the restart, where you want to be, where you don't want to be. But in terms of the whole track position versus passing ability, your ability to pass cars out on the racetrack, uh, you know, it's a story every week, especially with the new aero package, how tough it is to pass, how important track position can be, which can lead to altering your strategy and when you pit and what you do when you're on pit road. Uh, tell me the relationship there, track position or passing ability, which one will be more important on Sunday? Uh, yeah, the reason that we picked this question for New Hampshire is because it's, uh, it, it could be a debate. Uh, but let me speak to passing first. Expected pass efficiency is a Y intercept. And last year, New Hampshire had one of the steepest slopes. There was more legitimate passing happening at New Hampshire than at most tracks. Hmm. Having said that, Track position has never not been the most important thing in any race. You're going to hear some talking head somewhere saying, well, look, today is all about track position. That has been true for every single race since the founding of NASCAR. It's, uh, it's taken this rules package to popularize that thought among the fan base. If you're a driver this weekend at New Hampshire, you'll probably want fresh tires, but you'll need 
the spot and the track position more just because that is something that is in your control. Uh, the passing, even as good as it has looked recently at this racetrack, that's a toss-up with this new rules package. Well, and we always ask, what do you want to see happen this weekend? David, I'll let you go first. What do you want to see happen in New Hampshire? Well, I'll tell you what I don't want to see, and that's <laughs> a uh, that's a blowout. Uh, blowouts on one-mile tracks are like coal in your stocking on Christmas Day. Uh, as I mentioned, Martin Truex has the fastest car on one-mile tracks. He will be very good this weekend. Kyle Busch, despite not having quantifiable speed and a small sample size, will be very good this weekend. I would love to see a round two of sorts after their Sonoma battle. Uh, I dig it when the Titans, the elites of our sport, go toe-to-toe like that. And New Hampshire Motor Speedway would make a fine setting for this. Uh, it is one of my favorite racetracks. That's what I'd like to see. Good stuff, good stuff. And I want, since I am a New Englander, since I am a Connecticut native, I would like to see Ryan Priest get a top 10. Uh, you know, he, we've talked about him a lot on the podcast since the beginning, really since the beginning of this podcast, but just not having the, maybe the season that uh, certainly that he wants or that maybe we expected of him, but going back to his home racetrack, I believe he'll be in the modified race. He'll have a lot of fans up there. And not, you don't have to accuse me of being a Ryan Priest fanboy, but I'm a Connecticut guy. So I'd like to see Ryan Priest uh, put on a good show for all the fans that are going to be up there in New Hampshire, specifically there to watch the modified guy, the old school short track guy. Have a good weekend. I hope he can deliver for them, David. Here, here. I think he'll be a, a very a popular choice among the fans there. There you go. Love New England. And, and normally we would end uh, the episode here. But not anymore, because if you were listening last week, you know we debuted the Positive Regression Scouting Network. And David, we have our first scouting report in by the listeners. Tell us about it. Oh, yes. Robert Cole is scouting Chandler Smith, 17-year-old from Talking Rock, Georgia. It was uh, his request. He was very excited to uh, scout Chandler. His report It's been a busy up and down month for young Chandler Smith. Two days after his dominant second ARCA win at Madison, he climbed into KBM's number 51 Tundra at Iowa Speedway for his first truck series outing. Owner points set him on the pole. He led the first 55 laps and came home eighth. A doubleheader in St. Louis the following weekend yielded both a career worst ARCA finish of 16th and a top five truck series finish. His debut at the Slinger Nationals, that is a super late model race, ended just one minute after it began, after (laughs) contact with the wall on lap four. Uh, But he rebounded to win last week's ARCA race at Elko Speedway. Perhaps his biggest test this year, though, comes at Pocono later this month, his first start on a two-mile track. Again, that is from Robert Cole. Uh, Alan, dude, how much are you vibing Chandler Smith? What's up, dude? I, I cannot wait for Chandler Smith to be back in the truck series because it was such a pleasure to cover him in Iowa, dude. He's a good dude. He's a good young guy. And we know he has a lot of talent. And I was first introduced to Chandler Smith uh, by your prospect list. Uh, admittedly, I had no idea who this young man was. And he is proving to be everything that uh, you have projected him to be, at least as a 16-year-old prospect. And I look forward to seeing what he does in the future. 
And uh, for, for the first positive regression scout, scouting network report, I thought that was pretty good. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate you uh, kicking off the inaugural uh, report with uh, a prospect of what's going on out there with these young kids in the world. Indeed, and I will uh, I will add that uh, names have been uh, have been going fast. Uh, Haley Deegan is off the board. Derek Krause is off the board. I'm sure we'll be hearing reports on them soon. But if you are interested in becoming a scout for the Positive Regression Scouting Network, uh, that is uh, one of the ways that uh, Al and I will pay for the podcast. Uh, it is it is your support and donations, but uh, you get a fun responsibility. Head to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com. It's only $3 per month to join. Uh, give it some consideration, and we just want to hear about uh, good young drivers. So uh, I'm I'm curious to to what all of you have to say. Maybe you you found a driver that we don't even know about. So uh, bring it on. That's the kind of stuff I'm looking forward to. Well, just remember, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcast, we are available. If you like what you are hearing, please leave a rating or review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility, and your help in spreading the word is just so appreciated. Really, it is. We know you're telling friends, and and because we can see the numbers, it's awesome. Just thank you. So we appreciate all that. If you have questions... We want to answer them here on the podcast. We had some just today, uh, getting them on Twitter, some really good educated questions, just shows that you're listening and uh, thinking uh, thinking of the way that we're talking, which is neat. So if you have a question, we'll answer it. Reach out on Twitter at PauseRecPod. We'll answer it here on the podcast. David, I know you're always busy. What are you working on? On MotorsportsAnalytics.com, I am... Three track position radar charts deep. Uh, it's going to be a series that I'm running for the remainder of the year, just looking at how drivers acquire and defend track position. So far, Cole Custer, John Hunter Nemechek, and Ryan Blaney have been spoken for. So uh, you'll want to go there and check that out. And on The Athletic, uh, this week wrote about Martin Truex, whether he is a championship contender. Uh, spoilers. Probably not, based on the speed Ooh. of his moderate mile and a half, but uh, wanted to dive in onto a little bit of the history there. Uh, and then later in the week, we'll have an article on NASCAR uh, pit road penalties. So be on the lookout for that. Good stuff there. And I will not be heading to New Hampshire, unfortunately. Uh, no truck race up there, so I will uh, not be traveling this weekend. But a busy weekend over, I mean, a busy week I had over on Hub. Uh, if you are listening to this on Thursday morning, first of all, thank you. That means you are a subscriber. But I got a big uh, Thursday show on Race Up. I got three things running. Our latest ride to work with William Byron, and I promise you it's pretty cool and revealing what he says about uh, Chad Knaus and the moment he found out he was going to be paired with him. I have a great sit-down with Kurt Busch from last week in Kentucky and just what that meant, how he's changed, what it means going forward for the rest of the season. Also, our latest edition of What's in a Number. We look at the number 28 and everything that's meant to the world of NASCAR and its history, both happy and, of course, sad. And I sat down with Eric Jones and had a good uh, conversation this week at the shop over at JGR as he sits right on the playoff bubble. So, And, of course, we appreciate you listening. This was Positive Regression Episode 26. We'll be back with you next week. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Stay positive, everybody. Talk to you then.
To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got Geico, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But as a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. Geico will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. Geico. Great service without all the drama.